Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to Eco Report. For WFHB, I'm Cynthia Roberts. And I'm Robert Schull. Coming up later in the program, environmental correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Hank Duncan of the City's Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Commission about potential changes to bike infrastructure on the south edge of the university and to find out which organizations were awarded this year's BPSC Local Motion Grant. And now for your environmental reports. The fifth National Climate Assessment indicates that despite a decrease in U.S. CO2 emissions and reduced costs for renewable energy, the nation remains susceptible to the impacts of climate change. The report foresees a doubling of heat waves, a 50% increase in droughts, and heightened cyclone and wildfire activity across the country, even with ongoing efforts to limit global warming. Highlighting the significance of preparedness in these impacts, for these impacts, the assessment examines adaptation and migration activities across the U.S. Data reveals coastal states in the west and northeast lead in efforts due to heightened risks. However, the report underscores, underscores the nationwide impact of climate change, with southern states facing elevated risks despite varying preparedness levels. For instance, Mississippi, South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama show lower preparedness, while Florida stands out as an exception alongside well-prepared states like California, Massachusetts, Washington, New York, and Maryland. Indiana is among the least prepared in the Midwest. Despite the clear human and environmental toll of global warming, countries are taking only baby steps to rein in greenhouse gas emissions, a senior UN official said, summarizing a new UN report card on the promises made by government so far. Restoring global forests where they occur naturally could potentially capture about a third of the amount that humans have released since the beginning of the industrial era, according to a new study published in the journal Nature. The research, which with input from more than 200 authors, leveraged vast troves of data collected by satellites and on the ground and was partly an effort to address the controversy surrounding an earlier paper. That study in 2019 helped to spur the Trillion Trees movement, but also caused a scientific uproar. The new conclusions were similar to those in a separate study published last year. Mainly, the extra storage capacity would come from allowing existing forests to recover to maturity. But major caveats remain. If we protect all current forests, where will people get timber, rubber, and palm oil? Would forests be able to store carbon quickly enough? And how much forest carbon would be lost to fire, drought, and pests as climate change intensifies? 
The level of carbon storage cannot be achieved without cutting greenhouse gas emissions, said Thomas Crowther, the study's senior author and a professor of ecology at ETH Zurich, a university in Switzerland. Quote, if we continue emitting carbon as we've done to date, then droughts and fires and other extreme events will continue to threaten the scale of the global forest system, further limiting its potential to contribute, end quote. Forests are essential to tackling both the climate and biodiversity crisis. They offer food, shelter, and shade to humans and countless other species. They clean our air and water, and they pull climate warming carbon out of the atmosphere. As the climate crisis intensifies, that ability has made them controversial. How much can we rely on trees to get us out of this mess? There is one thing they all agreed upon. To tackle both climate change and biodiversity loss, the world must do far more to cut fossil fuels and end deforestation of old growth forest. For Indiana, the path forward is clear. We must cease burning coal, build much more capacity in wind and solar, and transition as rapidly as possible to electric vehicles. In managing our state forest, we should reduce the current level of cutting of 14 million board feet. To have any 60-year-old trees, we should return to the time before Republican governors required the Forestry Department to generate roughly half of its budget from logging. Until Daniels, the state allowed about 2 million board feet. To date, the state has not shown the political will to work toward meeting a zero-carbon future. New Scientist reports that yet another unwanted temperature record may have been set in 2023. According to a preliminary estimate, the global average surface temperature on the 17th of November was more than 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels for the first time. Quote, our best estimate is that this was the first day when global temperature was more than 2 degrees centigrade above the 1850 to 1900 levels or pre-industrial levels at 2.06 centigrade, end quote, tweeted Sam Burgess in the Copernicus Climate Change Service. While exceeding this milestone on one day shows how rapidly the planet is warming as a result of rising greenhouse gas levels, it doesn't mean that the 2 degrees centigrade warning limit has been breached. That breach will occur when the daily average temperature over a whole year reaches 2 degrees centigrade or above. As it is expected that the El Nino event will continue into 2024 summer, so we may have several days breaking 2 degrees Celsius in the near future. The 2 degrees Celsius number has been seen as a goal to stay under for at least 30 years. The nations have been remarkable in largely doing nothing to prevent this warming. Optimists about the shift to clean transportation often talk about a double benefit. Electric vehicles have almost zero emissions, and soon they also will be less expensive than their gasoline counterparts. But the idea of the inevitability of cheaper EVs took some hits last year as the average price of lithium-ion batteries increased. Analysts reassured us that the price surge was due to short-term factors and that the long-term trend of price decreases would likely resume in 2023. They were right. 
Bloomberg's new economy forum issued its annual battery price report this week, showing a global average price of 139 per kilowatt hour for a lithium ion battery pack, which is down from 161 in 2022 and lower than any year on record. The report predicts prices will continue to decline, reaching an average of 113 in 2025 and 80 in 2030. This is a story about a citizen having an impact on corporate decisions. A volunteer at WFHB saw a TV ad and decided to act. The Toyota commercial showed a young lad carrying an aquarium climbing into the family vehicle and heading for the mountains. Upon arriving at a lake, the boy empties his aquarium into the lake. The WFHB volunteer wrote a note to the corporate headquarters in the USA. The note said that introducing foreign species into our waters is always a bad idea. The note illustrated what can happen by giving an example Lake trout were introduced into Yellowstone Lake in the 1980s, and they have taken over and eaten the native cutthroat trout. Bears coming out of hibernation historically would catch cutthroats before the grasses and berries were available. The lake trout is a deep-water fish that bears cannot catch. The bears turn to elk calves. The elk population has dropped from 16,000 to 4,000 impacts are seen throughout the food chain. It is not known whether the letter stopped the ad, but we can be, what can be said is that the ad has not been seen after the company received the letter. Vast stretches of the U.S. are dominated by corn, nearly 100 million acres of it stretching from Ohio to the Dakotas. What once was forest or open prairie today produces the corn that feeds people, cattle, and uh when made into ethanol cars. Now the nation's airlines want to power their planes with corn too. Their ambitious goals would likely require nearly doubling ethanol production, which airlines say would slash their greenhouse gas emissions. If they succeed, it could transform America's corn belt yet again, boosting farmers and ethanol producers alike, but also potentially further damaging one of the nation's most important resources, groundwater. Several issues need resolution. Ethanol provides less energy than hydrocarbons, and ethanol eats away at many plastics and rubbers. Up next, some local organizations were awarded the Local Motion Grant earlier this week from the Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Commission, and bicyclists that use 3rd Street by IU may soon see new measures to keep drivers from obstructing or entering the bike lane. We now turn to Zero Rose and Hank Duncan for more on these developments. I understand that the uh, bike lane on the south edge of the university is possibly going to go through some changes. Did did the uh, Bicycle Pedestrian Safety Commission make a recommendation that's going to the Board of Public Works? They did not make a formal recommendation, but we did bring it through the Bicycle and Pedestrian Safety Commission to get their thoughts and make sure that they were, um, for the most part, in support of this project. And after hearing their comments and suggestions, they are clearly in support of this project. But I think their next step that was communicated is that there needs to be more protection, a longer area of protection, which are questions that 
we in the city have brought up during these discussions, but for this first step in the iterative process of creating a fully protected bike lane along 3rd Street, when going through this project, we already had the barriers necessary to create some protection in this hot spot of cars parking in the bike lane. And so the question wasn't, why should we do this now? It was, why would we not do this now? Because we've heard complaints, criticisms, questions for years now on this area of 3rd Street, that being from Eagleson to Indiana, about high-speed traffic, high-volume traffic, cars parking in the bike lane, forcing cyclists to go into the motor vehicle lanes. And we've made that first step in making it lower stress for cyclists. Again, this is not the end-all be-all. There will be more coming in the future, especially with an impending corridor study of the third and outwater corridors. But for a first step in the process of creating a low-stressed east-west network across Bloomington, this is it. And it's not exactly that the cars are parking in the bike lane, but they are pulling over and dropping people off and all of that, right? They can't yes, it is a very popular loading zone, um, drop-off and pull-in zone for mostly students, but some staff as well as they get to campus. I understand that um, there's a couple different types of ways that are being considered to basically delineate this line every few feet. One of them are larger, but that was opposed aesthetically by the university, I understand. So are you going to do the, the shorter, what are the, what is the term for them? So um, great question about the types of barriers that we're using. In general, when providing, um, we call them tempor temporary materials, because again, this is not the end step. This is just the first step. But for these materials that we're using, there are a few different types, one being delineator posts, which are flexible posts that are taller and motor vehicle drivers can see from farther away to give a better visual cue of whether it's a bike lane or not. Um, but the problem with them is that if a car does happen to run into them, they don't provide much actual protection to the bike lane. They're more of a visual cue. But along with that, we're using uh, what we call traffic barriers and traffic stops, which are lower to the ground, about six inches up and about two and a half feet long, which are essentially curbs. So if a car, if a driver wanted to drive over that into the bike lane, they would essentially be driving over a curb. Along with that, we have some longer traffic barriers that are about six feet long, but also about six inches high, similar in profile. Again, we're using materials that we already had uh, to keep the cost as low as possible. We are just bidding this out for labor. So we're using all the temporary material we had. And then in future years, we will expand onto that with more material. So essentially, we're using predominantly the those traffic barriers which are lower to the ground and create an actual physical barrier between the bike lane and motor vehicle lane but along with that every 100 feet or so we're putting in a delineator post to give a visual cue to drivers that this is in fact a bike lane and you mentioned indiana university we we did partner with them in terms of the design on this again this is 
a very visually pleasing area of Bloomington. You have great architecture on the south side of the street. You have great limestone buildings on the north side of the street. And their request was to minimize the use of delineator posts to prevent eye clutter. And we tried to do that as best as we could, mostly going with those traffic barriers, which also provide a physical barrier between the bike lane and motor vehicle lanes. And those are going to be often enough every few feet to essentially make it to where there's not a car length of space where somebody could get in there? Yes, where we are putting protection, those traffic barriers will be spaced with about four feet in between each barrier. And is that area, has it had a lot of uh, accidents or any kind of associations of safety problems? So the safety problems in general are the requests that we're getting from Bloomington residents. Uh, this is the most requested area in Bloomington to put a protected bike lane, essentially because so many drivers are stopping and parking in the bike lane, forcing those cyclists to either stop behind the car and wait for them or merge into the right lane of motor vehicle traffic, which is high speed and high volume. Uh, along that corridor, we see about 12,000 vehicles a day. Um, there's a speed limit of 25 miles an hour, but according to our traffic counts, over 60% of those vehicles are speeding. So you're forcing the cyclists to merge with high-speed, high-volume traffic, which is incredibly stressful. And as a city that aims to prioritize and promote cycling and walking and other sustainable modes of transportation around Bloomington, that does not meet our goals. And that's really a kind of a, a problem across the system of cars lipping over into the bike lane or crowding it off when they get to the intersection for the turn so that the bicycle can't come up to the intersection. And I know that some of the commission members expressed that they would like to see that a little more enforced, those type of things more enforced, but that's that's pretty nitty gritty. You'd pretty much have to have like the old uh, traffic people waving their arms to, to, to take you through. And I understand that part of the reason you're doing it this way and not something like the seven line is that there's a consideration of turning the two one-way streets into possible two ways. Yes. Yeah, so there is um, in our adopted transportation plan, there was a recommendation that we uh, study this corridor more deeply. Um, Atwater and Third Street are the main east eastbound and westbound arteries through Bloomington, but as we as we've mentioned, they are conducive to high speed traffic and uncomfortable walking and biking along these corridors. Um, along with that, Bloomington Transit is in the middle of their east west corridor study to um tried to provide some rapid rapid transit through Bloomington and Third and Atwater seem to be the optimal candidates for that. So before going into this study, we want we wanted to still make improvements on this bike lane, but with the realization of in the not so distant future, the these corridors may be 
a very different environment than what they are now. So instead of building something much more permanent and costly, like the seven line, we wanted to take this first iterative step. So if we do change the streetscape along this area, it won't be, there won't be as many sunk costs. And I know all that's uh, going before the Board of Public Works next week on Tuesday, the 19th. Yes. So if people are wanting to try to chime in with public comment, they should look that up. Um, just this week, you guys um, decided on recipients to award the local motion grant to that you guys devised. Um, can you tell us uh, who, who got those and what, what the projects are? Yeah, of course. So the local motion grant, just to give a bit of context, is aimed at nonprofits and other local organizations that want to promote biking and walking in Bloomington. The city, for the most part, focuses on building infrastructure, creating low-stress networks so people can walk, bike, take public, public transit around Bloomington. But along with that, there needs a balance of programming as well. And that's what this grant tries to provide, um, that balance of programming combined with the city's focus on infrastructure to create the full circle of prioritizing walking and biking. So we actually had a lot of great applicants this year. I, I was thrilled to hear those presentations last month. And this past Monday, the Bicycle Pedestrian Safety Commission had a great productive, productive discussion on the merits of each application or an organization that applied. And in the end, four organizations were awarded the locomotion grant uh, that being the Boys and Girls Clubs of Bloomington, they currently host a club riders program that provides children with the um, experience of riding a bike, learning how to ride a bike about uh, around Bloomington, uh, learning how fun it is to ride bikes, and also learning how to fix and maintain their bikes while uh, a full-time staff person is with them, guiding them along the way. The Monroe County Consolidated School Corporation Adult Education Program is wanting to start a borrow a bike program in which their students can loan out a bike for six weeks at a time to provide them with transportation to and from class and also just around Bloomington to learn the benefits of having a bike and biking on a daily basis. Our third recipient was the Monroe County Public Library. They, around town, you might have seen them, they implement story walks, which are essentially uh, informational stories uh, or areas along trails and parks and paths for children to read and become engaged while they are outdoors walking or biking. And this grant will help them implement another story walk around Bloomington. And then our final recipient was the YMCA of Monroe County. They host an annual fundraiser called the Bike for All event uh, that supports their scholarship to help uh, underprivileged families and children benefit from the programs that the YMCA has to offer. So this grant will help them support this fundraiser 
and the event uh, next spring or summer. And one other note that I want to mention, usually in a grant cycle, in this grant cycle, the planning and transportation department has $2,400 to spend on the recipient, but because of the both high quantity and high quality uh, applicants, we were able to triple that amount to $7,200 and give the Bike Pet Safety Commission more leeway to truly reward these applicants uh, and support the, these wonderful programs around Bloomington. Again, the city for the most part focuses on infrastructure and to see so many organizations put this effort into promoting walking and biking is, is truly heartwarming and wonderful to see as a community. This is In Nature. This is Juliana Daly with In Nature. And today I am talking to you about Short's Goldenrod, also known as Solidago Shortii. Indiana is home to one of the rarest plants in the world. So, what is Short's Goldenrod? It is a rare perennial plant known for its bright yellow flowers. The plant stands up to two feet tall with narrow leaves alternately arranged on the stalk. The longer leaves, which are up to four inches long, are found near the middle of the stem. Look for Short's Goldenrod in the middle of August to early November when the flowers are in bloom. Short's Goldenrod prefers habitat near riverbanks, cedar glades, and dry open pastures. They prefer full sun, but can grow in shady areas going through succession. They attract butterflies, hummingbirds, and native bees. For more than 60 years, it was thought the plant had become extinct. Then in 2002, it was discovered growing along the Blue River watershed. It has been listed as federally endangered since 1985. You can find Short's Goldenrod growing along the Blue River in Crawford, Harrison, and Washington counties. They are found embedded in fissures in limestone and surrounded by other karst features. It is important to protect the land surrounding the existing populations and to also take care when visiting the areas that are havens for Short's Goldenrod. You've been listening to In Nature, a production of WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. For Eco Report, I am Cynthia Roberts. And I am Robert Schull. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we are all affected by climate, global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. 
And now for some upcoming events. Do you know what a smammal is? Plan to come to McCormick's Creek State Park on Saturday, December 16th at 10.30 a.m. to learn about smammals. You will explore the life of some of the tiniest critters that call the park home as you learn about the small mammals at McCormick's Creek. Join Anthony at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 16th from 1 to 3 p.m. for a Cave River Valley hike. This is a two-hour rugged hike into a very beautiful and primitive natural area. Meet at the Donaldson parking lot, and you will carpool 15 miles to the off-site property. There are no restrooms on the site. Please wear waterproof hiking boots. There will be a Lake Strahl Wildlife Hike at Brown County State Park on Sunday, December 17th from 9 to 9.45 a.m. You will hike Trail 6 around Lake Strahl while learning about the wildlife in the park and around the lake. The Whooper Wednesdays will continue at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area until February 21st. Come to the Visitor Center on Wednesday, December 20th at 8 a.m. to walk the property and see if you can spot some of the resident birds, including the endangered whooping crane. Make sure to dress for the weather. Enjoy the full cold moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, December 23rd from 7 to 7.45 p.m. Join Anthony on Trail 6 for the last full moon of 2023 and hear stories of why it is called the Full Cold Moon. Meet at the Grissom Memorial parking lot. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-3344-003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noelle Hrusky Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noel Herhusky Snyder produced today's show. Brandon Blewett is our engineer. For WFHB, I'm Cynthia Roberts. And I am Robert Shaw. And this is Eco Report.